Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Each year, Beeson Divinity School has the privilege of welcoming to our campus outstanding scholars from around the world to present one of our three endowed lectureships. We have a lecture on the Reformation heritage, one on preaching, and another one on biblical studies. And today we hear one of the lectures that was given here several years ago by Professor Richard Borkham from the United Kingdom. He's a native of London. He's taught at the University of Manchester and just recently retired from a position at St. Andrews University. Really one of the leading New Testament scholars, scholars of Christian origins in our world today. And when this lecture uh, took place, he was working on some research that later became a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And that book received the Michael Ramsey Prize for uh, Religious Literature in Great Britain. It's a wonderful book, and this lecture is kind of the soil out of which that particular book comes. He begins by talking about the quest for the historical Jesus. That's the English title English translation, rather, of a book by Albert Schweitzer, the very beginning of the 20th century, in which he reviewed so many attempts to tell the life of Jesus in the preceding 100 years. And increasingly, as people went back to look at Jesus with their own presuppositions, their own pre-understandings, it turned out that Jesus looked more like them than anything else. And Schweitzer kind of unmasked this whole gigantic scholarly effort and place the quest for the historical Jesus on an entirely new footing. Well, it's continued to go on with various twists and turns. We think uh, especially of the Jesus Seminar of recent decades. But what Richard Borkham does here in this lecture is to go back to the concept of eyewitnesses, those who heard and saw Jesus here on earth, listened to his words, and then wrote about what they had seen and heard, and passed this on to other faithful men and women of faith. And he kind of gives a new, fresh airing to the historical validity of witness, testimony, eyewitness testimony. And so we should listen to this lecture. Uh, think about all of the currents in New Testament scholarship today and the efforts to construct Jesus so that he looks more in our image than anything else. And then hear what Richard Baucom tells us about the recovery of Jesus and the eyewitnesses. A wonderful lecture at the very cutting edge of New Testament scholarship. Let's listen now to our friend, Professor Richard Borkham, on Jesus and the eyewitnesses. Thank you very much for that introduction, and thank, thank you all for your welcome. I'm very much enjoying being here with you this week. At the beginning of the 21st century, the quest of the historical Jesus flourishes, especially in the United States of America. Like its 20th and 19th century predecessors, it poses a considerable problem for Christian faith and for Christian theology. What, after all, does that phrase, the historical Jesus, mean? It is a seriously ambiguous phrase with at least three meanings. It could mean Jesus as he really was in his earthly life. In that sense, distinguishing the earthly Jesus from the Jesus who now lives and reigns exalted in heaven and is to come to bring history to its end. 
In that sense, the historical Jesus is by no means all of the Jesus Christians know and worship, but as a usage that distinguishes Jesus in his earthly life from the exalted Christ, the phrase could be unproblematic. But of course, the full reality of Jesus as he historically was is not accessible to us. The world itself could not contain the books that would be needed to record even all that was empirically observable about Jesus, as the closing verse of the fourth gospel reminds us. Like any other part of history, the Jesus who lived in first century Palestine is knowable only through the evidence that has survived. We could therefore use the phrase, the historical Jesus, to mean not all that Jesus was, but Jesus insofar as his historical reality is accessible to us. But here we reach the crucial methodological problem. For Christian faith, this Jesus, the earthly Jesus, as we can know him, is the Jesus of the Gospels. Jesus, as Matthew, Mark, Luke and John recount and portray him. There are difficulties, of course, in the fact that these four accounts of Jesus differ. But there is no doubt that the Jesus of the Church's faith down through the centuries has been the Jesus found in these Gospels. That means that Christian faith has trusted these texts. Christian faith has trusted that in these texts we encounter the real Jesus. And it is hard to see how Christian faith and theology can work with a radically distrusting attitude to the Gospels. Yet everything changes when historians suspect that these texts may be hiding the real Jesus from us. At best, because they give us the historical Jesus filtered through the spectacles of post-Easter Christian faith, at worst, because much of what they tell us is a Jesus constructed by the needs and interests of various groups in the early church. Then that phrase, the historical Jesus, comes to mean not the Jesus of the Gospels, but the allegedly real Jesus behind the Gospels, the Jesus the historian must reconstruct by subjecting the Gospels as historical evidence uh, to ruthlessly objective, so it is claimed, scrutiny. Now this is not just treating the Gospels as historical evidence. It is the application of a methodological scepticism that has to test every aspect of, of the Gospels so that what the historian establishes is not believable because the Gospels tell us it, but because the historian has independently verified it. The result of such work is inevitably not one historical Jesus, but many. The Jesus of Dominic Crossan, the Jesus of Marcus Borg, the Jesus of Tom Wright. However minimal or however maximal this historian's judgment of the historical value of the Gospels, the result is Jesus reconstructed by the historian, 
a Jesus attained by the attempt to go back behind the Gospels and, in effect, to provide an alternative to the Gospels' constructions of Jesus. There is a very serious problem here that is obscured by the naive historical positivism that popular media presentations of these matters promotes, not always innocently. All history, meaning all historiography, everything that historians write, is an inextricable combination of fact and interpretation, the empirically observable and the intuited or constructed meaning. In the Gospels, we have, of course, unambiguously such a combination. And it is this, above all, that motivates the quest for the Jesus one might find if one could leave aside all the meaning that inheres in each Gospel's story of Jesus. Now, one might, of course, acquire from a sceptical study of the Gospels a meagre collection of extremely probable but mere facts that would be of very little interest. That Jesus was crucified may be indubitable, but in itself it is of no more significance than the fact that undoubtedly so were thousands of others in his time. The historical Jesus of any of the scholars of the quest is no mere collection of facts, but a figure of significance. How come? If the enterprise is really about going back behind the evangelists and the early church's interpretation of Jesus, where does a different interpretation come from? It comes not merely from deconstructing the Gospels, but from reconstructing a Jesus who, as a portrayal of who Jesus really was, can rival the Jesus of the Gospels. We should be, no, um, we should be, be, be under no illusions that however minimal a Jesus results from the quest, such a historical Jesus is no less a construction than the Jesus of each of the Gospels. Historical work, by its very nature, is always putting two and two together and making five, or twelve, or seventeen. From the perspective of Christian faith and theology, we must ask whether the enterprise of reconstructing a historical Jesus behind the Gospels as it's been pursued through all stages of the quest, can ever substitute for the Gospels themselves as a way of access to the reality of Jesus, the man who lived in first century Palestine. It cannot be that historical study of Jesus and the Gospels is illegitimate, um, or that it cannot assist our understanding of Jesus, to say otherwise would be, as Tom Wright often says, a, a sort of modern docetism, a denial that Jesus really did live in history that must be in some degree therefore accessible to historical study. What is in question is whether the reconstruction of a Jesus other than the Jesus of the Gospels, 
The attempt, in other words, to do what the evangelists did all over again, but with different methods, critical historical methods, as the modern historian will insist, can ever provide the kind of access to the reality of Jesus that Christian faith and theology have always trusted they have in the Gospels. By comparison with the Gospels, any Jesus reconstructed by the historical quest cannot fail to be reductionist from the perspective of Christian faith and theology. Here then is the dilemma that has always faced Christian theology in the light of the quest of the historical Jesus. Must history and theology part company at this point where Christian faith's investment in history is at its most vital? Must we settle for trusting the Gospels for our access to the Jesus in whom Christians believe while leaving the historians to construct a historical Jesus based only on what they can verify for themselves by critical historical methods. I think there is a better way forward, a way in which theology and history may meet in the historical Jesus instead of parting company there. And in these lectures, I'm trying to lay out some of the evidence and methods for this way forward, its key category is testimony. I suggest that we need to recover the sense in which the Gospels are testimony. This does not mean that they are testimony rather than history. It means that the kind of history, the kind of historiography they are, is testimony. Testimony asks to be trusted, not necessarily to be trusted uncritically, but not to be treated as credible only to the extent that it can be independently verified. Testimony asks to be trusted. Testimony offers us, I would suggest, both a reputable historiographical category for reading the Gospels as history and also a theological model for understanding the Gospels as the entirely appropriate means of access to the historical reality of Jesus. Now, while it's true that a powerful trend in the modern development of critical historical philosophy and method finds trusting testimony a stumbling block in the way of the historian's autonomous access to truth that he or she can verify independently, it is also a neglected fact that all history, like all knowledge, relies on testimony. In the case of some kinds of historical event, this is especially true, indeed obvious. And so that we can answer the charge of special pleading in the case of the Gospels, in tomorrow's lecture, I shall present for comparison a remarkable modern instance, the Holocaust, where testimony is the major form of historiography and of historical access to the events. We need to recognize that historically speaking, testimony is a unique and uniquely valuable means of access to historical reality. 
Theologically speaking, the category of testimony enables us to read the Gospels as precisely the kind of text we need in order to recognize the disclosure of God in the history of Jesus. Recognizing this theological meaning of the history, not as an arbitrary imposition on the objective facts, but as the way the witnesses perceived the history, an inextricable coherence of observable event and perceptible meaning. Testimony is the, is the category that enables us to read the Gospels in a properly historical way and a properly theological way. It is where history and theology meet. Now, in order to pursue this agenda, we need to give fresh attention to the eyewitnesses of the history of Jesus and their relationship to the gospel traditions and to the gospels themselves. In general, I'm going to be arguing that the gospel texts are much closer to the form in which the eyewitnesses told their stories or passed on their traditions than is commonly envisaged in current scholarship. This is what gives the Gospels their character as testimony. They embody the testimony of the eyewitnesses, not of course without editing and interpretation, but in a way that is substantially faithful to the way the eyewitnesses themselves told it. Since the evangelists, I would claim, were in fairly direct contact with the eyewitnesses, not removed from them by a long process of anonymous transmission of the traditions, which is the common scholarly view. This directness of testimony between the eyewitnesses, this directness of relationship between the eyewitnesses and the gospel texts requires a quite different picture of the way the gospel traditions were transmitted from that which most scholars have inherited from the form critical movement in New Testament scholarship early last century. In particular, I want to argue with new evidence that the eyewitnesses did not simply begin the process of tradition that then continued in an anonymous community process unrelated to the eyewitnesses themselves. Rather, we should think of the eyewitnesses continuing to tell their testimony throughout their lives as living and authoritative sources and guarantors of the traditions. Gospel traditions did not, I think, for the most part, circulate anonymously, but in the name of the eyewitnesses to whom they were due. The, gospel, the Gospels themselves, I argue, have largely unnoticed ways of indicating the eyewitness sources of the traditions they embody. And that will be the major fresh contribution of today's lecture. But I want to begin with a very important recent book um, to which my own thinking owes a lot. It's by the Swedish scholar Samuel Berskog, and he calls it Story as History, History as Story, with the helpful subtitle, The Gospel Tradition 
in the context of ancient oral history. Its most important contribution towards putting the eyewitnesses back into our understanding of how the gospel traditions were transmitted consists in comparing the gospels with the role that eyewitness played in ancient historiography in general. Burscog compares the practice of Greco-Roman historians with that of modern oral history, so-called, and finds the role of eyewitness informants very similar in both. The Greco-Roman historians, convinced that true history could be written only while events were still within living memory, valued as their sources the oral reports of direct experience of the events by involved participants in them. A crucial point in Burskog's account of this ancient way of researching and writing history is that the ideal eyewitness was not the dispassionate observer, but the person who, as a participant, had been closest to the events and whose direct experience enabled them to understand and to interpret the significance of what they had seen. The historians, he says, preferred the eyewitness who was socially involved, or even better, had been actively participating in the events. Eyewitnesses, he says, were as much interpreters as observers, and their accounts became essential parts of the historian's writings. Now, Burskog argues that a similar role must have been played by the form, in the formation of the gospel traditions and the gospels themselves by individuals who were qualified to be both eyewitnesses and informants about the history of Jesus. He attempts to identify such eyewitnesses and to find the traces of their testimony in the gospels, stressing that they like the historians and their informants, would have been involved participants who not only remembered facts, but naturally also interpreted in the process of experiencing and remembering. The gospel narratives, he says, are thus syntheses of history and story, of the oral history of an eyewitness and the interpretative and narrativizing procedures of an author. In Burskog's account, the eyewitnesses do not disappear behind a long process of anonymous transmission and formation of traditions by communities, but remain an influential presence in the early Christian communities, people who could be consulted, who told their stories, and whose oral accounts lay at no great distance from the textualized form which the Gospels then gave them. Now the relevance of this, I hope, to our overall concern in these lectures is clear. It lies in the fact that testimony, the stories told by involved participants in the events, were not alien to ancient historiography but essential to it. Oral testimony was preferable to written sources, and witnesses who could contribute the insider perspective only available from those who had participated in the events were preferred 
to detached observers. This goes against the instincts of much modern historiography because it seems to compromise objectivity, putting the historian at the mercy of the subjective perspectives of those who had axes to grind and interpretations of their own to pass on. But there is much to be said for ancient historiographical practice um, as at least an important element in historical research and writing. The ancient historians knew that first-hand insider testimony gave access to truth that could not be had otherwise. Though not uncritical, they were willing to trust their eyewitness informants for the sake of the unique access they gave to the truth of the events. In this respect, we can see that the Gospels are much closer to the method, methods and aims of ancient historiography than they are to typical modern historiography. Though Berskov, interestingly, draws attention to the quite recent development of oral history, which values the perspective and experiences of oral informants, not just mining their evidence for discrete facts. Now, if we are to pursue this insight with regard to the Gospels, what is especially at stake, I think, is the closeness of the Gospels to the eyewitnesses. And this is where I want to add to Berskog's case. And first, I want to present two sorts of evidence that the eyewitnesses remained accessible sources of their testimony throughout their lives, and that gospel traditions were not anonymous, but known from their association with particular eyewitnesses who told them. So the next section is called Papias on the Eyewitnesses. This is one of the sadly few fragments that have survived of the book on the sayings of Jesus that Papias of Hierapolis wrote in the early 2nd century. But with careful study, it can show a great deal, I think, about how, in a period towards the end of the first century, the period in which three of our Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, were being written, the relationship to which, uh, the relationship of eyewitnesses to traditions about Jesus was understood. It's important about this, it's important as, as we read, as we will in a second, the uh, this, this passage of Papias, it's important to realize that although he's writing sometime early in the second century, the period he's writing about is late in the first century, the period when he himself was collecting oral traditions about Jesus. It was a time when most of the well-known eyewitnesses were no longer alive, but some were still available. And he must be speaking of a time around 80 to 90 at the end of the first century. So he says, I shall not hesitate also to put into properly ordered form for you everything I learned carefully in the past from the elders and noted down well for the truth of which I vouch. For unlike most people, I did not enjoy those who have a great deal to say but those who teach the truth. Nor did I enjoy those who recall someone else's commandments, but those who remember the commandments given by the Lord, Jesus, to the faith and proceeding from the truth itself. And if by chance 
someone who had been a follower of the elders should come my way, I inquired about the words of the elders. That is, what, according to the elders, Andrew or Peter said, or Philip or Thomas or James or John or Matthew or any other of the Lord's disciples, and whatever Aristion and the elder John, the Lord's disciples, were saying. For I did not think that information from books would profit me as much as information from a living and surviving voice. Now we need first to sort out the groups of people that Papias is talking about here. And there are actually four. First, there are the followers of the elders. And these are the only people with whom he had direct contact when they visited his church. Secondly, there are the elders. These are the senior Christian teachers in various churches in the province of Asia at the end of the first century. For the most part, these elders were not themselves eyewitnesses of the history of Jesus, but they had known those who were. Thirdly, there are the disciples of Jesus. Papias gives a list of seven, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Thomas, James, John, and Matthew. And then finally, he puts into a separate category two other disciples of Jesus, Aristion and John the Elder. Now, why these two different categories of personal disciples of Jesus? The key lies in the verbs. Of the first group, the seven names, Papias inquires what they had said in the past, while of Aristion and John the Elder, he inquires what they were saying in the present. And this is how we can be sure that he's talking about a period in which the eyewitnesses were dying out. Many were now dead, but still accessible to Papias by first-hand report were two who were teachers in Asia, Aristion and John the Elder. John the Elder so-called to distinguish him from the other John and called an elder because, as well as having been a personal disciple of Jesus, he was also one of these senior teachers in the churches of Asia. This is why Papias was collecting testimony from the eyewitnesses whenever he had the chance. They were dying off. And for the same reason, Luke, Matthew and John were all writing their Gospels around the same time. Now, the most significant implication of what Papias says is this, that all traditions of the words and deeds of Jesus were attached to specific named eyewitnesses. This speaks decisively against the old form critical assumption that the that sight of the eyewitness origins of the gospel tradition um, would, by the time the gospels were written, have long been lost in the anonymity of collective transmission. From Papias, we can see that this was not the case. Papias expected to hear specifically what Andrew or Peter or another named disciple had said, or specifically what Aristion or John the Elder were still saying. We can probably deduce that just as these last two long surviving disciples continued to repeat their oral witness in their teaching as long as they lived, 
So the other disciples had been not just originators of oral traditions in the earliest period, but authoritative living sources of the traditions up to their deaths. The oral traditions had not evolved away from them, but continued to be attached to them, so that people like Papias wanted to hear specifically what any one of them said. Now the last sentence of that fragment of Papias has often been misunderstood. He states a strong preference for orally transmitted information over information from books. And the phrase he uses for the former, a living and surviving voice, picks up a widely used proverb for which the phrase a living voice was standard. This phrase was used in various contexts, in all of which it expressed the value of first-hand contact with an informant, a teacher, or an expert, as compared with merely reading a book. It does not refer to a long process of oral tradition. Papias' preference is not for oral tradition as such, but for the testimony of still-living eyewitnesses, specifically that of Aristian and John the Elder. The living and surviving voice is not a process of tradition, but the actual personal voice of an eyewitness. Papias would not have continued this preference into the second century because it was no longer an option when the eyewitnesses were dead. The name, ne ne next section um, of the lecture is called Names in the Gospel Tradition. There's a phenomenon in the Gospels that seems to me to ne have never been satisfactorily explained. It concerns names. Most characters in the Gospels are unnamed, but some are named. I want to suggest now the possibility that many of these named characters were eyewitnesses who not only originated the traditions to which their names are attached, but also continued to tell these stories as authoritative guarantors of their traditions. In some cases, the evangelists may have known them. Now, I referred first to the lists of names that you have there on the handouts, other than the names of the 12, which are a special category on page 2, and I'll mention those uh, secondly. But about the, the names other than the 12, the first point to make is that these names belonged originally to the traditions to which they are attached in the Gospels. I make that point because it has often been said that there's a tendency for names to be added in later stages of development of the traditions. But although I haven't time to argue this point in detail here, I think you can see for yourselves that it, that, that is not the case. Um, if you look at your leisure over the evidence in the table there, and look especially at where Markan material reappears in Matthew and Luke, which is really the first part of the table. If we assume Markan priority that Matthew and Luke are using Mark, then Matthew and Luke retain some names from Mark and drop other names, but in no case does a character unnamed in Mark gain a name in Matthew and Luke. 
So the tendency is not to the addition of names, but actually to the loss of names. Secondly, an explanation that could account for most of these names is that all these people joined the early Christian movement and were well known, at least in the circles in which these traditions were first transmitted. The fact that Matthew and Luke omit some of the names we find in Mark would be explained if these people had become, by the time Matthew and Luke were writing, rather more obscure, um, and they did not wish to retain the names of people who no longer were well known to their readers. Not all of these characters can plausibly be eyewitnesses of the traditions, but most of them, I think, can. A good example is uh, a name unique to Luke, Cleopas, who appears in Luke 24:18, in the story of the walk to Emmaus. The telling of that story does not require that this disciple be named, and his companion, of course, remains anonymous. There seems no plausible reason for naming him other than to indicate that he was the source of this tradition. Another kind of example would be the names of people who received healing or resuscitation miracles from Jesus. Actually, only four gospel stories of healings and raisings from the dead name the recipients. Uh, These are Jairus in Mark and Luke, um, his daughter, of course, raised, Bartimaeus in Mark, and Lazarus in John. So it evidently doesn't belong to the standard way of telling a gospel miracle story that you name the recipient. In most cases, the recipients are not named. In these rare cases, we may guess that the recipients were known in the early Christian communities and told and continued to tell their own stories. And finally, um, just a word about the case of the Twelve Um, All three of the synoptic Gospels contain lists of the names of the Twelve. And again, something I can't do in detail now, but if one looks really closely um, at these names, what the lists show, I think, is great care to preserve precisely the way they were known in their own milieu during the ministry of Jesus and in the early Jerusalem church, even though most of these names never appear elsewhere in the Synoptic Gospels. It's difficult to account for that phenomenon, I think, except by the the hypothesis that the Twelve were, as it were, the official eyewitnesses and guarantors of the core of the Gospel traditions. Their names are not, like others, attached to specific traditions in the Gospels, Um, for which they were the eyewitnesses, but rather to a body of traditions, no doubt uh, put together in the early Jerusalem church. So, unfortunately, that's all I can say about those names. There's a lot more that could be said in detail if I had more time. But you you will, I think, find it interesting if you look carefully at those tables for yourself later on. So, the eyewitnesses and the Gospels um, is my uh, next and final section. The evidence we've looked at from Papias and the phenomenon of names in the Gospels suggests, I've argued, that the eyewitnesses were key figures in the early church, who throughout their lifetimes continued to tell their stories. They would have been known to 
they, they would have been known as guarantors of their traditions to the evangelists, either as still living or as only recently deceased. Their story is still fresh in the memory. The eyewitnesses, I suggest, stand close to the text of the Gospels, which embody their traditions often in much the form they themselves had given them. But, as we've noticed, the names of such witnesses are scattered only rather thinly through the Gospels. They may indicate particular traditions that came from them, but the bulk of the material in the Gospels still seems to go unaccounted for. Or do the Gospels, in fact, have specific literary ways of indicating the eyewitness sources of their traditions as a whole? Now, to pursue this question, we need to notice, first of all, a kind of principle that the New Testament writings provide for witnesses to the history of Jesus. In the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, when the disciples wished to fill the gap in the membership of the Twelve left by Judas's defection, the necessary qualification for membership of the Twelve is stated thus. Such a person had to be someone who had accompanied us, the other members of the Twelve, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning Arxamenos, a very significant word as we'll see, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. Such a disciple had to have been a disciple from the beginning, from the time of John the Baptist's ministry when Jesus' own ministry began, should have travelled with Jesus on his itinerant ministry, and must have met the risen Jesus after the resurrection. Only such a disciple could witness, as it were, to the whole story of the gospel history. Such a witness to the whole story was the special role of the Twelve, though from the fact that two candidates were proposed for the vacant post, we can be sure that the Twelve were by no means the only disciples who fulfilled this qualification. The testimony of such disciples who could witness to the whole story would seem to be the kind of testimony that should underlie a gospel. Though, of course, it does not exclude um, the testimony of particular witnesses to particular events, such as we've mentioned, Cleopas, Bartimaeus, Jairus, and so forth. But the testimony of these minor witnesses would need to be set within a broader scope of traditions spanning the whole ministry of Jesus. This principle of witness from the beginning is therefore of great importance in our quest for the eyewitness sources of each gospel. The same principle is implied elsewhere in Luke's writings and most notably in Luke's preface to his gospel where he speaks of traditions handed on to us by those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and servants of the word. Again, this sentence should not be read, as much 20th century scholarship has read it, as placing Luke himself at the end of a long process of oral tradition that went back to the eyewitnesses. 
Luke is most naturally read as meaning that his traditions were handed to him directly by the eyewitnesses, whom he knew and heard, or at the very least, whose testimony he found in already written accounts um, that he refers to. Many others, he says, have already composed accounts of Jesus. The eyewitnesses on whom Luke's gospel especially depends then are those who were present with Jesus from the beginning. But this is not a peculiarly Lucan concept. Though not often noticed, it is, as I pointed out yesterday, also a Johannine notion. In John 15, 17, Jesus says to the disciples at the Last Supper, and I think this is a wider group than just the Twelve, he says, you are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Aparche, it's the same phrase as Luke uses in his preface. Now, a notion shared in this way by both Luke and John is unlikely to have been limited to those two authors. It must have been a widespread notion in the early Christian uh, movement. Now, once we become aware of the importance of this principle for eyewitness testimony, we can see that in three of the Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, it's expressed in a particular literary form that we could call the inclusio of eyewitness testimony. By that I mean that a particular disciple or disciples are mentioned towards the beginning of the narrative and again towards the end of the narrative, indicating that theirs is the testimony on which all of the narrative, or at least a good deal of the intervening narrative, depends. They are placed, as it were, at the ends in order to encompass the whole. Take Mark, for example. The first disciple named in Mark's Gospel, with a grammatically unnecessary double occurrence of his name for emphasis, is Simon, Peter, as he becomes later in Mark's story. At the end of Mark's story, although Peter and the rest of the Twelve have themselves dropped out of the story before the crucifixion, they are mentioned again in the message of the angel to the women at the tomb, in the next but last verse of the gospel, the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter. Now that slightly odd form of words is designed to name specifically Peter and to refer to him last. So even though Mark does not record resurrection appearances to Peter or the disciples, by means of this device of pointing ahead beyond the end of his narrative, he contrives to refer to Peter at the end of the story, just as he had at the beginning. Now, I've already mentioned that Mark's list of the twelve by name probably indicates an official body of eyewitnesses um, to the gospel traditions. Mark's Petrine inclusio indicates that his access to the traditions of the Twelve was at least primarily in the form of Peter's version of that tradition, no doubt told with Peter's own variations and additions. However, before we leave Mark, 
we need to notice that there's a problem about this appeal to Peter as the overall witness to the whole story that Mark tells. This problem is that Mark makes it quite clear that neither Peter nor any of the twelve were present at the climactically important final events of Mark's narrative, the crucifixion, the burial, and the empty tomb of Jesus. Now, in this respect, a glance at the fourth page of your handouts, I think, uh, yes, the, the fourth page is names in Mark, um, a glance at that pattern of how names appear throughout Mark's gospel is, I think, quite illuminating. You'll see that Peter's name occurs much the most frequently throughout the Gospel. Um, four other members of the Twelve, Andrew, James, John, and Judas, um, appear sometimes. Um, but up to the end of chapter 14, there are very few other names besides those of the Twelve. Then suddenly, in chapters 15 and 16, we find five new names appearing, five persons identified in some detail, and appearing in four cases more than once. These surely are the eyewitnesses of the passion narrative from whom Mark's account derives. Especially important are the three women. They are described in explicitly eyewitness terms. They watched the crucifixion and death of Jesus, 1540. They saw where his body was laid, 1547. They looked up and saw the stone rolled away from the tomb, 164. They saw with visual detail the white-robed young man sitting at the right side in the tomb, 165, and were told by him to see the empty place where the body had been, 166. Which of the women were eyewitnesses of which events is precisely noted? All three of them at the cross, two only at the burial, all three again at the empty tomb. It was of the greatest importance to Christian claims that people who, who had themselves seen Jesus dead and buried in a specific tomb were those who visited that tomb and found it empty. The specific eyewitnesses to this part of the gospel story are actually more important than any others. And Mark's narrative, as well as making clear that for these events, neither the twelve in general nor Peter in particular could claim first-hand knowledge, also makes entirely clear who the required witnesses were. And the same could be said of the role of the women in the other gospels. Now we turn to Luke. Luke evidently recognised and copied Mark's literary device of eyewitness inclusio. He doesn't reproduce Mark's first reference to Peter or Mark's last reference to Peter, but he nevertheless, in constructing his own narrative, makes Peter both the first disciple to be named in his Gospel 438 and the last disciple to be named in his Gospel 2434, again with the reiteration of the name for emphasis on the first occurrence. Luke here acknowledges the extent 
to which he is dependent on the Petrine witness that he found in Mark's Gospel. But Mark's Gospel, of course, though it provides a good deal of the overall framework of Luke's Gospel and many individual traditions, is very far from being Luke's sole source. Now, it's worth noticing at this point that by contrast with Mark and Matthew, Luke's Gospel is remarkable for its emphasis on the fact that the Twelve were not the only followers of Jesus. Luke often depicts Jesus traveling with a large crowd of followers. So some of Luke's traditions might well have come from some of these other disciples, and this is clear at least in the case of Cleopas and the story of the travelers to Emmaus, as we've already noticed. But Luke gives us a more general indication of the source of many of his traditions, again by using a literary inclusio. Luke is alone in naming women disciples of Jesus in his account of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Alongside the twelve, Luke 8.3 indicates that Jesus was accompanied by many women disciples, including three that Luke there names. Two of these three are named again in a reference to the women disciples that Luke places, again unlike the other evangelists, at the end of the story of the empty tomb, 24.10. So the Petrine inclusio is somewhat wider and includes this inclusio of the women within it. But evidently the women, and perhaps especially Joanna, were the sources of important traditions recorded by Luke, starting from an early point in the gospel ministry and continuing until after the resurrection. The women, too, fulfilled the qualification for witness from beginning to end. Finally, I turn to John, and I shall repeat a little of what I said yesterday in order to show you how it fits in uh, with the rest of the argument now. John has his own special use of the inclusio of eyewitness testimony, which I think, like Luke, he recognized in Mark and borrowed from Mark. It's intriguing to observe what it is in John that corresponds to Mark's references to Peter at the beginning and end of Jesus' ministry. In John, the first disciples of Jesus who appear initially as disciples of John the Baptist in 135, are two who remain anonymous until one of them is named as Andrew. But Andrew's companion is not as we might expect his brother Peter, as in Mark's story of the call of the first disciples, for Andrew subsequently goes to find his brother Peter and introduces him to Jesus. For readers who know Mark, it will seem that Peter is here displaced from his priority in Mark, not only by his brother Andrew, but also by the other of the first two disciples who remains anonymous and seems to drop unobtrusively out of the story. This figure has often been thought to be the disciple called elsewhere in John, the disciple Jesus loved. That disciple is never named in the gospel, and, of course, he could not hear on first acquaintance with Jesus 
be described yet as the disciple Jesus loved. But there is, it seems to me, an unnoticed but clinching argument for identifying this anonymous disciple of chapter 1 with the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple is portrayed in this gospel as the ideal witness to Jesus. It is his witness the gospel embodies. But in that case, he must surely fulfill the qualification that this gospel itself lays down for witnesses to Jesus. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning, 1527. In line with this principle, this disciple does indeed appear right at the beginning, modestly it might seem in that he is so unobtrusive in the narrative but also uh, rather immodestly in that he displaces Peter from the position of absolute priority. In his corresponding appearance at the end of John's narrative, forming the inclusio, he has acquired his honorific description, the disciple Jesus loved. Peter appears prominently in the last chapter of the gospel, but the beloved disciple is the last to be mentioned as the witness whose witness is now embodied in the gospel itself. So in conclusion, this almost unnoticed feature of the gospels, which I call the inclusio of eyewitness testimony, shows that three of the evangelists at least, and Matthew is the exception, as far as I can see Matthew does not use their technique, this technique, but three of the evangelists actually name or identify the major eyewitnesses who testified to and guaranteed the bulk of the traditions in their Gospels. A question I've not yet been able to follow up is whether this literary device of eyewitness inclusio is unique to the Gospels or paralleled in other ancient literature. But whatever the answer to that question, the Gospels' use of this device certainly aligns them with the key importance attached to direct eyewitness testimony uh, in ancient historiography in general. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.